Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Um, so glad you're here. Uh, thanks for making this morning special. Thanks for just being part of the gathering and what we've already got to experience in worship. I know it's been a blessing. I'm excited about this passage this morning, what we're going to get to talk about in God's word. I will highlight one thing as we jump into this particular passage that the Cove campus is working on a different uh, section of scripture. Uh, we had some internet issues uh, with the stream just happened within the last 24 or 48 hours that we couldn't resolve. And so uh, Jay is preaching a passage out of Colossians at Cove. I'm working through Matthew's gospel. So if you're leaving today and headed to your grow group and your grow group, you know, they've got people at Cove. They've got people at the downtown campus. You're like, okay, what, what are we going to talk about? I, I leave that up to you guys to figure out, you know, which passage of scripture you want to highlight, but you're going to know Matthew chapter nine uh, really well uh, after we're done here this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn with me, Matthew chapter nine. Uh, we have been making our way through the gospel of Matthew. So if you're new with us and haven't been kind of walking alongside River Tree in our teaching on Sunday morning, we love to take books of the Bible and just begin to make our way through them. And it's just a, a great way uh, to see God's work in specific ways. And hopefully we're kind of connecting things. So I want to hopefully even let see something connect for you this morning uh, that did for me as well as we look at this particular passage. So let's look, verse nine, Matthew chapter nine. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, but then they, and then they will fast. But no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into an old wineskin. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into a fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This section of scripture that we're looking at this morning, it follows the healing of the paralytic. So if you go back just to the previous section of scripture, you're going to see this story that is familiar to you of the man who was paralyzed, who was brought to Jesus on a, on a, on a mat. His friends lowered him down through a roof, right? And the man is coming to be healed, but Jesus actually starts a conversation with this man, with others witnessing about forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus actually pronounces forgiveness over this man and then heals him. And it created all kinds of controversy for the Bible teachers. Now, we, we move from that controversy to two more controversies. So the Bible teachers were certainly confused about forgiveness, what Jesus was truly offering and saying. Now we move to the Pharisees who were upset and uh, confused about fellowship. And then John's disciples that are about 
food and fasting. And so there's three groups by the end of the section and all three groups are significant. And Jesus is weaving through this kind of an illustration of new cloth and, and new wine. Let me hear this again. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Then he says too, neither is new wine put in an old wineskin. The skin bursts, right? The new wine spills out and everything is destroyed, but new wine is put into a fresh wineskin. Jesus is saying something about what he's doing. He's saying that it's going to be different. There's, There's altogether new. Jesus is saying what he's doing now doesn't fit well with what you've known previously in your religion, in your devotion, that this thing is new. It's, it's, this cloth is going to be put on and when it gets wet, right, it's going to, it's going to shrink down. And if it's put on a, on material that's already shrunk, it's already been weathered, right? It's going to make a, a tear. This new wine, it's still bubbling. It's still fermenting. It, it, there's a chemical reaction happening inside it. And, and so when this new wine gets into this old wineskin, if this old wineskin has already been stretched out, this new wine is going to cause it to burst, meaning there's something new. And Jesus is talking about something so unique, so new, it's going to require a new vessel to carry it. A new vessel is going to be important, a new person to carry it. So let's explore a little bit more what we see in this scene as Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. Many of you I know have been watching this series, internet series called The Chosen. And I have enjoyed it. I know many others have too. And the, the kind of the interpretations and the storylines of Jesus' ministry being played out and as well, a, a certain interaction that we're getting with the disciples that is new for probably many people to just think about these layers and stories and nuances within the lives of the disciples. And we've asked this many question, many times we've asked this question, is that, did that really happen? Like we'll, we'll be so caught up in the story. We'll be like, I wonder if that really happened. I, I would say the, the portrayal of Matthew in the chosen is interesting. And if you've seen it, he's, uh, he's uh, uh, meticulous for detail. He's good with numbers Uh, He's socially awkward. There's something about him that carries a certain innocence in in how the world works. He feels a little disconnected from that. And of all the things that I see within the story, one of the things that I would probably differ in is Matthew because Matthew was notorious. Matthew was notorious. Rome collected taxes in the area. And, and Rome would create these tax farms. If you're unfamiliar with this, it's almost like a franchise where you could buy a, a fast food franchise. The same was true about this area of taxation. Rome would look at a particular area. They would guesstimate the number of people in it, what it produced, and then they would determine a certain amount of taxation that should come with that. Then they would auction off that particular area to the highest bidder. So Matthew has bid and is the highest bidder for this particular area in which he is sitting in a tax booth, taxing his friends, his neighbors, his countrymen. And here's just a few taxes. There was an individual tax. If you were just a man, 14 to 65 years old, if you were a woman, 12 to 65, you paid a tax just for being alive. 
There was a ground tax, 10% of all grain, 20% of all oil. There was an income tax that you also gave as well on what you made on top of your income. There were all these separate taxes too, toll taxes, ways in which you would pass, boats that would dock and harbor. And then there were all these import and export taxes as well. And with all this taxation, it created a really corrupt environment, a really oppressive environment, because Rome said, we want our share, what we've determined, but if you collect anything more than that, that's yours. That's the incentive. That's why people would risk a lot, risk their their friends, their family, for the amount of money that they could make. And so this, this taxation, it was... I mean, it was oppressive. It was extortion. Tax collectors were your neighbors and friends that worked for the enemy and they profited off of your your hard work. You were starving while these guys were in lavish situations, becoming rich off of you. So understand, Matthew was a bad guy. He is easily the most hated man in the whole community. In fact, he was, he was forbidden to go to worship. He couldn't go to the temple. He lived in a perpetual state of being ceremonially unclean, excluded from the religious uh, worship observances, from the sacrifice. In fact, if you ate or associated with this man, with Matthew, you too would become unclean. So that, that's, that's what's happening as Jesus talks to this particular person. As he calls Matthew, Jesus sought someone that no one else wanted and no one else wanted to be around. And not only that, Jesus then goes to his house. Matthew invites all of his other unclean, notorious friends. And so imagine this. If you're someone who loves God's word, if you're someone who cares about Israel and God's people and the oppressive nature of what they're experiencing, you too would be like, why is Jesus going there? Why is he eating with them? It's a fair question. Jesus joins Matthew's party and the Pharisees ask the disciples, why? Why is he there? When Jesus talked about the kingdom of God coming, know this, the Pharisees wanted that too. They wanted to see the kingdom of God come very much. And and the way they approached it is they just believed if Israel would just follow God's law to the letter, One day, just one day, if everybody did what God's word said it to do, it would pave the way and usher in the Messiah. They believed that wholeheartedly. And so their desire to abstain or separate was a way to kind of protect their moral purity, to to be right, to be good, to not be counted with this group that was notorious and that was evil. And so they not only followed God's law strictly, but then they would add to it as well. It was called a hedge of protection. Ever used that term? They created a hedge of protection. They created other rules and other laws so that if, to protect you from breaking the big ones. I wondered about this too when I realized that, you know, they turn elevators off on the Sabbath. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've been in a place. I can remember going into a particular area that was run. The owners were devout in their faith and Jewish faith, and the elevators within their apartment building were turned off on Saturday, turned off on the Sabbath. Because Leviticus 35 says that you're not supposed to light a fire within your dwelling place, and when this circuit closes in the elevator and you push the button and it lights up, that spark, fire, is prohibited. So no elevator riding. 
Like this is this kind of, this is the degree. This is their commitment to God's word. They didn't want to transgress any of these laws. And here they begin to see a problem with Jesus. They're certainly concerned. They believe that if, if Israel would just purify itself and follow wholeheartedly God's commands, they could pave the way for the Messiah. So they're, I honestly think they're worried about Jesus. If Jesus is truly someone who's going to be influential, if he is an up and coming rabbi, they're, no, they're, they're at least worried, maybe shocked that Jesus would go here. Listen to Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's a, it's a great passage about this doctrine of separation. And we understand the Pharisees' position. We say ourselves, listen, friends, kids, bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, why are you hanging out with them? Oh, that person's not so great. Like, I mean, you can pray for them, but I don't know if you need to kind of like be their friend, right? Like we are in these conversations all the time. So, so don't miss this, right? Jesus is going to dinner with the most notorious group of people in the town. Will his presence offer an approval of their bad behavior, right? If he just shows up and has a meal with them, is he not condoning immorality? Have you had that conversation? This is, this is the tension that's rising up out of this passage. And so the Pharisees are asking questions. Are they wrong? Is Jesus wrong? Who's reading the Bible right? Jesus gives them this response. He offers this medical analogy. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, right? But those who are sick do. Getting older, I'm going to the doctor a lot more than I used to. Some of you may know this. And I don't know if you're like me, but there are times where I leave the doctor's office uh, on the other side of a, a full physical exam. And I'm like, I just paid for that. Like, I don't, that felt way too intrusive. And I actually paid somebody to do that. Like, I, this, this idea of like what a good doctor is. But good doctors do that. Right, if you have a doctor that you can never get in touch with, if you have a doctor that you just leave him messages and periodically he sends you pamphlets in the mail, like that's not a doctor that you want. A good doctor gets close. And this is this idea. This is the idea the Pharisees are struggling with because good doctors can pick up patients' diseases as well. This is the tension that you're feeling here. Think of a modern day surgeon just for a moment. Why, why do they scrub up before they go into surgery? Why do they get as clean as possible before they operate? It's so they don't undermine the real work. The doctor is clean to help the patient. And so Jesus, in a way, is rebuking the Pharisees' misdirected zeal here. He's saying, if, if you're concerned about the glory of God, if, if you're concerned about moral, moral purity, which is commendable, right? But if there's this pursuit of holiness that's best expressed in segregation more than care, then you're not expressing the holiness that God, that God wants. The idea of a life unto God 
was a life that avoided, was a life that abstained. And now Jesus is pointing to something that I would say is the greater, that it's, it's, a, it's a greater precedent, and he's saying it's mercy. Verse, nine, verse 13, go, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Where is Jesus going? He pulls us out. He goes to Hosea chapter six. He goes to Isaiah. He's actually going back into the scriptures, which the Pharisees value at a great deal. And he's taking something from the Old Testament and he's saying, this is deeper. This is deeper law. This is going to be a, a, a priority. It's, I would say, it's a rule within a rule. It's the interpretive principle. It's, it's the lens that we put on so that we can understand other scriptures. It's very much like, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These two, the rest of the law hangs on. So when we understand the Old Testament, we look at it through these commands. Love God, love others. And Jesus is saying something very similar right here. When you think about the glory of God, when you think about what God cares about, what God cares about is mercy over sacrifice. He's clarifying for us something that the Pharisees needed to see and something that we need to see at all because the true work of God is not in people who are withdrawing, but people who are engaging. If the Pharisees were really anxious about men and women encountering God, becoming holy, then their separation unto God should have made them more dynamic and more engaging to a larger community around them. They were getting clean so that they could do the real work. They were setting themselves aside, abstaining, avoiding, so that they could be better useful in the moment with people around them. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy is the marker. And it's this shift in mindset of what I'm giving up to who am I going to? That's the shift. What am I giving up? What am I doing? What am I not doing to who am I going to? That's the shift that Jesus is talking about. Years ago, I, student minister in Atlanta, we had this huge weekend that was designed in every way to reach kids that would just never go to church. So we're creating these moments, these events, the kind of attraction over the weekend to just connect with kids. They would probably just never come to a typical Sunday morning or Wednesday night, but they might come to this. Lots of kids showed up. Lots of teenagers were there. And as excited as I was for the number of kids that came, I started to get anxious. What's going to happen when they show up on Sunday morning? What are they going to experience if they come to my church on Sunday morning? And as Sunday morning rolled around, there were a couple teenage guys that walked in the back, found a spot in the back of the room, and I could tell they were from the weekend. I knew that they'd never been there before, and one of them was wearing a ball cap. Didn't take but a few minutes, and one of the ushers walked over to him and began to talk to him, and I knew he was saying something like, hey, you know, show a little respect, you're indoors, or this is the house of the Lord, I need you to take off your ball cap, because I saw the conversation, and I saw the hat come off, and those guys never came back to church. Now, maybe they were never going to come back anyway, right? That's, that's a possibility, but I wish that the usher 
who would always take a smoke break after passing the offering plates wouldn't have been the one, like wouldn't have been the one to talk to him about his hat. Jesus is talking to us about helping, helping us see that the glory of God is involved in more than the things that you aren't doing anymore, but it's in the new things that you're doing. It's in the way that you're moving closer to people. It's in the way that you're engaging. This is the new wineskin. The new wineskin, it, it, it's going to burst all of those other categories of who's good and who's bad and what do I not do anymore so that God would be happy with me. It's about who am I going to with mercy, not sacrifice, to get closer, to get to know, to get involved in the next person's life. This is what Jesus is talking about. But the question is, what if our care for somebody actually condones bad behavior? What if me being that person's friend, what if me being there for them in this moment of trouble or crisis or mistakes or regret kind of condones bad behavior? Jennifer, my wife, was an ER nurse when we first got married, and she did that for many years, and eventually she found her favorite spot in the ER was triage. She was the very first person that you met when you came to the ER. She just loved that. She, that, was, that was what she was really good at. And I will be honest, there were certain moments where I was a little concerned that she would work in the ER, bring home the latest cold, right? Whatever her patients had that she would get, and somehow, you know, that would end up getting to us as well. But I never, it never crossed my mind to think that Jennifer's presence in the ER was wrong. It never crossed my mind that her being there might have condoned behavior, right, of those coming in. And maybe she shouldn't work there, right? Maybe she just shouldn't be there, and that would kind of like teach everybody a lesson. They could just put a sign up in front of the ER that says, hey, if you're here because of your own mistake, because of your own negligence, right, some, your own reckless act, that's on you. Maybe that's what Jesus is, is shifting us. He's moving us in this way. He's saying this, who has ever seen someone changed by Jesus through someone else withholding love? Hasn't happened. How has withholding love ever changed somebody in their encounter with Christ? And what's powerful is when somebody does encounter Christ and they are received not because of their sacrifices, but they're received because of the mercy of God. And then that person then begins to move out and connect with and associate with other people, no longer worried about their reputation, no longer worried, is this other person going to somehow tarnish or make me unclean? When that person moves into those relationships, it actually doesn't diminish their holiness, they actually reveal it. They reveal their holiness, their otherness by loving and engaging, not from abstaining and separating. And the caution is this, is that we would somehow define the glory of God apart from Jesus eating with sinners. That you could pursue what's really good and miss God. If, you sent, if your sense of right and goodness has created right, categories 
where you just think, man, it would just be easier if those people weren't here. And if there was just something inside of you that just wished down deep, I just hope those people get what they deserve, then your sense of right is no longer Christian. The goal, the goal is not to be good. The goal is to be with God. Here's, here's the illustration that's helped me think through this. Imagine a, a mother and a child, and they are separated by a street, a busy, a busy street. The, the mother's on one side, the child is on the other. And as the child makes a move across the street, the mother holds up her hand and she says, stop, do not cross. But a few minutes later, she says, now, come, waves the child over. Well, that could be confusing for a child. Wait a minute, you said don't cross the street, and now it's like you're changing the rules on me. Now you're wanting me to cross the street. Well, what's the goal of the mother? The goal of the mother is not just that the child doesn't get hit by a car. The goal of the mother is that the child be with her, to be with her. And this is where Israel seemed to get confused over all of the things that God had created for them is that they believed that God had given them the law to be good and to separate and they were chosen and they were pulled out and they were select out of the whole world in this unique way. But God says, you've been chosen to be with me now in a greater way, to be with others in a greater way, to bless the world around you. The mother's goal is not that the child just avoid the cars. The mother's goal is that the child be where she is. And this is what Israel needed to realize. God was doing more by giving them the law than just to keep them out of trouble. But God wanted them to know him, to be with him, and to be committed and passionate about the things that God was committed and passionate about, to know his heart and to join him in those things. The Pharisees thought, if I could just create a certain amount of distance between me and all that is wrong... I'll be okay, but the problem is the more distance they created with other people, the more distance they created between themselves and God. This is what bursts the old wineskin. This is the change. Do you know why Matthew's calling is in the midst of a series of miracles that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 9? Because his calling is a miracle. Because Jesus coming to him going to dinner with him, sharing a meal with him and his friend, is the miracle. It's a miracle of association. And this is what Matthew doesn't want us to miss, that when Jesus does this, it bursts the old wineskins and it adjusts our understanding of how we used to categorize people, how we used to claim some people good and some people bad. It bursts and removes the old ideas of what God might owe me because of what I've sacrificed for him. Right? This new platform that I'm always working with God and kind of reminding him of what I've done in order that I might secure some kind of blessing. And it does something to us where now it, it brings our neighbor and our enemy in front of us and says, are you a merciful person to them as you have received mercy? Have you extended mercy? It, it changes all the categories. It requires a new vessel to carry this message, to carry this new wine and the gospel is always telling us that we needed intervention or it required professional help, someone outside to come to us, to bring us healing, to bring us the remedy, a doctor to come because of our sin. And then with the greater surprise is that when this awareness of sin comes, 
and we realize just how broken, how notorious, how reckless we are, we realize that the one person who isn't sick, the one person who's never sinned, the one person who rightfully could remain separate from us all comes near. And he has a meal with us. And he tells us, I'm not as interested in sacrifice as I am in you receiving mercy. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they're not bringing any good works to him. They're only going to receive what he has because God is merciful and wants to give us mercy. And as long as we are slow to count ourselves in the group of sinners, those that are, have needy, Jesus says, then I'm not really here for you. It's not until you count yourselves in this gathering of the notorious, the ones that are never going to get into what God has for you, unless God is merciful. If you don't count yourself in that, then Jesus says, I just, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. You're, you're, you're dealing with an old system that just doesn't work in light of what Christ is doing in our lives anymore. Has there been a change in you where that new wine has been poured in? Have you dropped some of these old categories? Has there been a reaction internal moving and bubbling for you to move away from what used to be how you thought about morality and purity and pleasing God through what you didn't do or who you didn't associate with to now being a person of mercy? It happens when we experience the mercy of God. That's where it begins. And that's where it begins for you. And I would just say, like, if you have doubted whether God could really love you, we've already sung about it. You're hearing a scripture about it again. That God sees you where you are and calls you, and that is a miracle. That something outside of you would gain your attention, something greater than you would call you unto himself and then he would come and he would fellowship and he would have a meal with you because he loves you and he wants to be merciful. And for others in the room, it may be a chance for us to reorient those categories that we've still held on to of who's really good, who's really bad, who's really in, who's out, how am I doing? Does God owe me anything for my devotion, for what I've given up, for what I've given Experience mercy again today. Let's pray. Isaiah 43, 19. It says, see, I'm doing a new thing. And now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Jesus, thank you for this passage this morning. Let us not define your glory without seeing you share a meal with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus, burst our old categories. Help us to stop seeing our good works and our sacrifices at things that make us better than others or ways to make you owe us something in return. 
but may we move closer to others. May we reveal your glory and your holiness. May we reveal something that's truly unique about you, God, as we kind of move from these lower values of separation and abstinence to mercy and love, fellowship and friendship. God, if we have been measuring our our personal goodness against anyone else's, I'm worried it may cause us to miss you, Jesus, and what you're doing. So move in our hearts. Help us to experience your mercy new and fresh and let that burst inside of us. Let it be something that only a new vessel could contain. So make us new this morning. Reorient us towards your goodness and towards your gospel and towards this glory that we see in Jesus of a doctor who comes near, gets close, touches our lives, heals us because he wants to, because it would best show who God is. We pray this in his name. Amen.